Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. On this Christmas Eve, it is important to remember that the birth of Jesus is good news for the poor and the oppressed because it heralds the ascendancy of God's law over the tyranny of human authorities. Beginning with David and then Caesar, even now, Jesus the Christ tramples underfoot every pretender to his father's throne. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. May the birth of Jesus Christ put to death all human claims on power. May the poor eat and be satisfied. And may those who are proud upon the earth be scattered in the imagination of their hearts. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 360 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have heard again and again in Matthew, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is coming to take over the throne of David and reorient it towards the kingdom. We heard in the genealogy that he was not the son of David, but we continue to play with this idea because we are in the spirit of Ezekiel and Matthew playing on the people's expectation for a God like all the other gods and a king like all the other kings on the earth. But we know from the Bible that this is Israel's sin. And finally, we come to this moment where Jesus goes on the offensive puts David in his place, and explains what's really going on. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. That answer is beyond predictable. They already gave this answer in the way that they have conducted themselves with the Lord's triumphant entry into the land. The true heir of the father's inheritance through the line of Isaac has returned to the land. It's a very beautiful drama. It's an epic drama, Richard. And upon his return, all of the bottom feeders have been scrambling for position and making petty arguments to justify themselves and their claim on power because they view Jerusalem from the perspective of David's worldly glory. They want it to be David's city, which is pejorative. They don't understand that it is God's city, and so they try to subjugate the son of the living God to the death 
of a man's throne. Matthew, all this time, has been talking about this throne. What is the kingdom? What is the king? What is the son of David? What is the son of God? All these questions. What is the kingdom of God? These have been the questions we've been seeing all throughout Matthew. These are the themes. This is the most important question a Christian has to ask. When you hear Christians justify how they think politically, they talk about how American government or whatever government they're under should be run according to the Bible. They say, this isn't the world that we care about, so therefore we don't have to believe in global warming. We don't have to stop global warming. This isn't ultimately the world we're concerned about. We're concerned about the kingdom of heaven. People will throw around this word, the kingdom of heaven, but what Jesus has been doing throughout this entire book has been teaching what the kingdom of heaven is. If you go into the book of Matthew thinking you know what the kingdom of heaven is, you don't need the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is for those who need to learn what the kingdom of heaven is, who need to listen to what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is, because at every turn, the kingdom is not what you think. As you said, Father, Jesus goes on the offensive here. This passage reminds me of the old show Columbo, where after the whole conversation, he says, one more thing. Every single dispute up to this point started with someone confronting Jesus with a question. But this is where Jesus begins the conversation. In other conversations, the people started with their presuppositions, and Jesus had to confront that presupposition with the correct presupposition. In this passage, Jesus begins with the question he sees as important, and that's the shift that we can't just gloss over. It's very easy when we read quickly the Bible to gloss over these points. But as you said, Father, we've had all these people in Jerusalem. Does Jerusalem belong to the Romans? Does it belong to the Jews? If it belongs to the Jews, does it belong to the Sadducees? Does it belong to the Pharisees? Does it belong to the Herodians? Who does it belong to? Who does it belong to? Who owns this thing? That's the question that everyone has been trying to run. And Jesus runs a different question. What do you think of the Christ? Now, oftentimes people talk about Christ as if it's Jesus' last name you know, Mr. Christ. That's not what Christ means. Christ means Messiah. It's a title. It's Dr. Jesus. It's Christ Jesus. It's a title. It means the Messiah. So when he says, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? Who sires the Messiah? This is the question. Because siring the Messiah is not just a relationship of some sort or a loving relationship or something. It's who does he descend from? Whose seed is he? Like you mentioned with Abraham and Isaac, this question of seed, who does he descend from? This is all essential for understanding who the Christ is. He doesn't say, who do you think I am? Like he did when he talked to his disciples. He says, who do you think the Christ is? Who do you think the Messiah is? Whose son is the Messiah? When you say Jesus is the Christ, what are you saying? When you say that Jesus is the Son of God, what are you saying? You have to go back to the Scriptures and understand what Scripture teaches about what the Messiah is and what the King is before you can understand who Jesus is. The Old Testament creates this box, this definition of what the Messiah is, and Jesus is that Messiah because he fits that box. 
He isn't the Messiah by assumption, and then you cram him into the Old Testament to try to figure it out. You have to read the Old Testament. You have to know the Old Testament, and you have to know how the Old Testament lays out these terms before you can even understand who Jesus is. He's continuing the line of argument that began when he challenged the lawyer, that the lawyer isn't even looking at the text. He is taking the text to them. He is bringing the question of the psalm to them. He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Have you looked at the Psalter? Have you read the Pentateuch? Do you understand that this isn't about David's line? Again, we have to go back to the problem of the kings in the Old Testament. In Samuel, the people ask for a king because they want a king and a god, just like all the other nations with their kings and their deities. And Scripture is proposing an alternative that undermines and brings to an end that system of tyranny. It's not a political end. The systems of tyranny will always persist because that's the human condition. It's that the teaching that the Messiah brings to Jerusalem sets you free from the tyranny and the control of the Roman Empire without shedding blood because it, to borrow a phrase from the Matrix, it sets your mind free. Even though you are under the boot of Roman tyranny, you are not under Roman tyranny because the gospel shows you who's really in control. And once you understand that Caesar is a fraud, you're no longer afraid of Caesar and you can live, actually live. Instead, these people are squabbling over the scraps, not from the father's conversation with his son, the bread that falls from the master's table. They're squabbling over the scraps that Caesar throws to them, along with the mob. It's embarrassing for them. These are the teachers and the leaders of God's people, and they're behaving like vagabonds. It's the tragedy of those who get caught up in the stupid, petty scrambling for things that pass away. That's exactly where the problem lies. You know, I talked to a group of Christians this last week, and I said, anyone who says one president is more godly than another president, one party is more godly than the other party, this makes no sense. Because no ruler, no one with authority can be godly. In this passage, you see exactly how the people think. Okay, we know who David is, so the ruler has to be in the line of David, the seed of David, the son of David, following the pattern of David. And Jesus says, well, actually, David follows the pattern, the template of this Messiah, the Lord said unto my Lord. That Lord is the one according to whom David is patterned, or any king should be patterned, or let's be honest, the one to whom whatever earthly leader you have can't measure up. When Jesus makes this question, 
and poses it to his audience. They think that the Messiah is in the line of David, when in fact, David is in the line of the Messiah. And this connection Matthew broke in chapter 1. Jesus is not the son of David. And here he challenges his audience to think David is in the line of the Messiah, not the other way around. Now, why is this important? goes back to exactly your point, Father. If you think that whatever leader we have has to measure up to David or is okay because they're like David, like all this nonsense about how, you know, the president is like Cyrus and that's okay, or he's like Samson and that's okay. It shows that he can still be godly. It's nonsense. Whatever president you have in there, Trump, Obama, Biden, it doesn't matter. They do not measure up to this Messiah, this Lord who sits at God's right hand their enemies are not going to be put at their feet. And in fact, that president just might be at the foot of the true Messiah, the true leader. And that's the one that we focus on. That is the one whom we serve. In Psalm 110, David is confessing that the scroll of the law is above the king. And by preaching Psalm 110 to those still in the land of Jerusalem when he enters the city, by preaching this text to them, he is reminding them that they have forgotten. They are imagining that the synagogue, that Herod and his party, and that the Romans themselves are above the scroll. They have things backwards. If you think back to last week, the point I was making, Richard, about the folly of bragging about your own community— In that sin, we find again and again the false claim that one church or another church supposedly wrote the Bible. That is blasphemy. It's not just a mistake. It is blasphemy. Because who doesn't understand that the Bible was written by the finger of God? Now, if you want to debate what that means in terms of fundamentalism, that's a different discussion. I'm not talking about fundamentalism in that sense. I'm talking about this statement that God wrote the law as a principle, that it is taboo, hands off human beings, this didn't come from you. If it came from you, then you can claim God's throne and you can have everything backwards. The church did not write the Bible. That is what this statement means. The church is under scripture. This is a red line, because once you say that you produced Scripture, or as the Constitution of the Modern State of Israel says to its folly, we gave the world the prophets. Are you kidding me? Israel is saying to the world, never mind that they're mixing human history with the biblical story. That's a totally different discussion about fundamentalism. But you're saying that Israel gave the prophets to the world. That's a big joke. It's absolutely a rejection of Psalm 110. You are under God. God is not under you. And what strikes me, Richard, is that even now in 2020, it's still controversial to tell religious people that they are not above God, which shows you that what people really want when they are attracted to religion is to have God's power for themselves. 
they're no different than politicians. The Pledge of Allegiance, when we say we're under God, the problem here is that we assert that we're under God. We're not allowed to assert whether we're under God. God may claim us or God may not claim us. We can hope that we are under God. Is David the Messiah? Only if he is under the one who's at the right hand of his God. But if he is not under the one who's at the right hand of his God, he is not a king. He is only a pretender. Even David himself is just a pretender if he is not fashioned, if he does not walk after the way of the Lord whom his Lord calls Lord. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he says that the last enemy to die is death. And in the end, everything will be put under the feet of Jesus in subjection to God's law. The death that dies in 1 Corinthians is the death wielded by human tyrants. Scripture brings about an end to oppression through instruction and by changing the way we understand our situation and changing our reference. That is why in the Pauline school more broadly, to say that you are the slave of Jesus Christ actually sets you free. If you are the slave of Jesus Christ, nobody else can touch you. No one else can make you do anything. Everything pertains to God's law. That's the mind-bending factuality of slavery equating to freedom in the Pauline school, which isn't Pauline. It comes out of the Pentateuch. That's the story of Exodus, Richard. Yes, you come out into the wilderness to be the slave of a new master, but slavery to the God of Abraham is freedom from the oppression of Pharaoh. It's so fundamental and so systematically rejected, but it's the heart of the matter if there is one. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's the balance of the quote that we started talking about before we read the verse, but this is where Jesus is the Christ. He wears that title in spades because when he talks, he doesn't give his opinion. When Jesus talks about the law, or the wisdom literature, in this case, the Psalms, he's not guessing. He is saying what it says. And without much explanation, he's showing you what it means, Richard. The Lord said to my Lord, it's a very logical question. So who is this guy sitting on the right hand of God? If people think that the new king is going to be in the image of David, they're wrong, according to scripture. The true Messiah is the one in whose image David was fashioned. Is your reference point for the ruler of Jerusalem this David, whom you claim as your own? Or is it this one whom David calls Lord that you cannot claim, that God claims as his right-hand man? This is the question. You want your king to be fashioned after David. That's why people are okay with the president being fashioned after Cyrus. This is pharisaical thinking. The leader that the Christian follows is this one who sits at the right hand. Verse 45 is one of the classic mic drops of the New Testament. It's a technical knockout, as Father Paul likes to say. Jesus literally 
uses the content of the scroll like a clamp. He just clamps everything down. There's no oxygen. There's no space. The only way you can argue with Jesus is if you choose to be an idiot. Because it's evident. It requires no explanation. It's black and white. You can't argue with what David said. David himself said it. So in scrambling to try to figure out who's going to remake the throne of David in the image of Caesar, you yourself have confessed that you reject the teaching of the Psalter ascribed to your father David. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question, because your questions are useless. Your questions are self-involved. Your questions are focused on your own desire to dominate others with the teaching that was given to set people free from your domination. It's a big deal. It's not just that they got it wrong, Richard. It's that they were supposed to be the teachers and the custodians and the servants of the people to share this instruction to safeguard them and protect them and be a shelter for them, not the synagogue, but the Torah itself was to be a covering for the people and the synagogue under the oppression of Caesar. And they've subjugated the Torah to Caesar's throne. It's disgusting. This whole discussion that we've had throughout these past couple chapters are coming to a close. People wondered about the ownership of the field and of the city and of the wife, and they wanted to know who got to own it, and they wanted David to be the measuring stick. But in fact, the one who gave this word to David is the one who is the measuring stick, who owns and who possesses everything in the name of his father. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.